exhorted one another, let the amen sound from his people again. So, okay, that was weak. Some of you, it sounds too formal to say amen, so you need to give me a good southern amen. Let the amen sound from his people again. We could do a little more of that this year if you want to. Just saying. If you have your Bible, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 with me this morning. We are coming to the conclusion of our study of this great epistle, and I think there'll be just one more message, but who knows, um, in this epistle before we move on to other studies in this new year. And you may not have joined us for the entire study. We actually started this study virtually on Wednesday evenings, and uh, then we moved it to Sunday mornings uh, in the fall. I was a business minor in college. You should not be impressed by that in the least, but I only mention it because we were required to read certain books about business, about executive management, and one of them was the book by Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. How many of you have read that book? How many of you started to read it but didn't finish it? Okay, thank you for your honesty. In his book, Covey contrasts uh, two different mindsets. One mindset that sets you up, according to Covey, for success. The other that sets you up for definite failure. Now, these two different mindsets, Covey calls the abundance mindset versus the scarcity mentality or the scarcity mindset. Now, I don't believe or understand or know that Covey professes to be a believer, and this is from a a worldly, uh, more secular perspective for sure. But I've always thought that his two categories were, were riveting. The first one, scarcity mentality, simply means that we see life as this finite pie. And if someone takes the biggest piece, which happened in some of our homes over the holidays, that will leave less or no pie for you. So the scarcity mentality is to look at life as though there are not enough resources, so I better get mine. It's like standing in a church potluck dessert line, and you've looked at the portions that are available, you've looked at the line and your place in line, and you're starting to get worried. The scarcity mentality thinks that way. Perhaps I could illustrate it like this. A scarcity mentality, perhaps in a church, would be perhaps you serve on the worship team, and after a service, someone speaks to another member of the worship team about how good they sounded. And instead of you being joyful about that compliment, you translate that to mean, I must not be able to sing. Or you're at work and your boss comes in and says to another member of your team, let's call him Edwards, he says, Edwards, wonderful job on that project. And you interpret that and translate that, even though you were on the team too, I'm worthless and I'm probably going to be fired soon. That's a scarcity mentality. Then there's the abundance mentality, according to Covey, and that means that, or that mentality, or that mindset is that there's plenty to go around for everybody. There's so much that everyone should be celebrated so that you don't have to worry about resources running out. And if a similar thing happened, like the compliments that I just illustrated, their response would be, I'm on that team. We all won. So which do you have? the scarcity mentality or the abundance mentality. And I want to use Covey's own words. And here's how he describes the scarcity mentality. He says it's a zero-sum paradigm of life. 
People with a scarcity mentality have a very difficult time sharing recognition and credit, power or profit, even with those who help in the production. They also have a very hard time being genuinely happy for the success of other people. And here's how Covey describes the abundance mentality. The abundance mentality, on the other hand, flows out of a deep inner sense of personal worth and security. It's the paradigm that there is plenty out there and enough to spare for everybody. It results in the abundance mentality, sharing of prestige, recognition, profits, decision-making. It opens up possibilities, options, alternatives, and creativity. Now, again, this is from a secular perspective, but as I mulled over it, I thought, you know what? In 2020, and perhaps years prior, believers have a tendency to think that grace, God's grace, is on a scarcity, that it is to be viewed as something that if I don't get mine, it might be all taken up, rather than believing that there is an abundance, an inexhaustible well of grace that is available for all God's people. In other words, God doesn't run out of grace. You're not going to use it up. You're not going to draw off the bank of grace. Remember these words when we're introduced in the Gospel of John to the Lord Jesus. We're told that he is full of grace and truth. We're also told that it was grace upon grace that was demonstrated to us in Christ. And do you remember in Romans 5, the end of Romans 5, we're told that if we're tracking with Paul on this whole topic of grace, we might come to the wrong conclusion. Remember this? In Romans 5, if you're tracking with Paul, you might conclude, wait, the more sin there is, the more grace there is. So why not sin some more where I can get some more grace? I mean, that, that would seem to make sense. If, if the more sin, there's always a superabundance of grace, why not just sin so I can enjoy more grace? Actually, if, if you're tracking with Paul doctrinally, you should come to that razor-thin conclusion. Now, that's a wrong conclusion because Paul in the next verse of chapter 6 says what? God forbid. <laughs> that's the wrong conclusion. And some of you are saying, close the loop, pastor, close the loop. You can't be preaching on grace like that. But, but, but here's the truth. If you understand that the more sin there is, there's always a superabundance of grace, it will change the way you live your life you will have what I would refer to as a grace abundance mentality. And the text of scripture that we're looking at this morning, there is a phrase, a title of our God, that's only used here in our New Testament, that has struck me over the last month. And I was looking forward to preaching this passage, but more than that, I believe it's going to be the theme that I want us to focus on this year and that is knowing the God of all grace. I want you to see it with me in our text. Verse 10 says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. I thought we'd practiced. To him be the glory or dominion forever and ever. Oh, there we go. That's a lot better. I want to, to point out to you this morning that we're told here in this passage that our God is the God of all grace. Our God is the God of all grace. In other words, all of the grace that we will need for our lives is found, its source is our God. He is called here the God of all grace. 
Now, in our study of 1 Peter, you may remember that this letter is written to suffering Christians. They're referred to as the elect exiles early on. And we've been talking about that as our theme of this book. As you study it, he's saying this world is not our home. We're just passing through. We're looking forward to the ultimate glory of the new heaven and new earth. But right now, we're living as dual citizens. We're citizens here, but we're also citizens in heaven. But what we found in chapter 5 is, first of all, he exhorts them to have humility. And then Pastor Joe dealt with the passage that tells us how we ought to deal in humility with our anxiety. In the last two Sundays, we took a little bit of a, of a side path about the great red dragon, but we've looked at how we are supposed to deal with adversity. But now he's going to end the book on a wonderful note of security. Because after all, there is this mindset that even as Christians today face, this thought that if you are a Christian, you're going to have smooth sailing that there won't be difficulties and adversity. And if you have adversity, that could shake your what? Security. So maybe I'm not secure in Christ because I'm facing adversity and I'm facing suffering. And that's not what I expected. So now he's going to finish with, you could not be more secure because our God is the God of all grace. Now, I want to give us some headings as we study this together that I hope will be helpful for us. And I looked at a few different outlines, and this is the one I settled on, so we've got to go with it. And here are the words. I would like us to look at the pattern that is set forth here. Then I would like us to look at the promise. And then finally, I would like us to consider the praise. First of all, our God is the God of all grace, and I want us to see the pattern. I mentioned to you repeatedly that if you were looking for a book of the Bible to help disciple a new believer... Many would recommend, and I would like to commend to you, the book of 1 Peter. It's quite different than a lot of our discipleship manuals and our six or eight week courses for new believers. We typically will deal with great topics like prayer and Bible study, but we often don't talk about suffering. And here, these new believers are a little bit shattered by the fact that they are facing adversity. And I want you to see that there's a pattern that's laid out here that we should expect as Christians Here's the first part of our text. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Here is the Christian pattern. We've seen this over and again in the book of 1 Peter. Now, what Peter does is the same thing Paul often does in his letters. As you're studying the New Testament letters, I hope you've noticed this, that in their reprisal or their closing, their conclusion, they will often review the major principles that were spoken of throughout the epistle. We're not disappointed here because in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 5, he's going to review three major words that keep coming up in the book. What are they? Suffering, grace, and glory. You see that? Suffering, grace, and glory. He says after you've suffered a little while, he's been talking about suffering. The God of all grace, he's going to do some things. He promises to do some things. And then there'll be ultimate glory. You see that in your text? Shake your head if you do, okay? I'm just seeing if you're tracking with me. I know, it's, I know it's the first Sunday of a new year. But there is a pattern. Here's the pattern. We will suffer as God's people. God will give us the grace to persevere, and we will ultimately enjoy eternal glory. Now, if you were sitting down with a new believer, and I hope all of us will have opportunity to do that this year, 
to disciple a new believer or perhaps a new believer who needs discipleship? Will you consider sharing with them what is often neglected and what too often new believers are surprised by? This is normal Christian life. You will suffer, God will give you the grace to persevere, and you will ultimately enjoy eternal glory with Christ. That's our journey. And he's going to say, this is the pattern. So he starts it with a little while. Notice this. He says, a little while. After a little while, you are going to enjoy these things. The God of all grace will do this. Now, I want you to see how this is bookended. Turn back to chapter 1. Again, some of you were not with us when we were completely virtual in our study of 1 Peter. But if you'll go back to chapter 1, verse 6, I want you to see how this is just a reminder of what he's already taught them. In this you rejoice, though now, verse 6 of chapter 1, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perisheth, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he starts his letter by saying, elect exiles, this is the pattern. This is normal Christian life 101. You suffer, the God of all grace will give you grace to persevere, and ultimately you're going to enjoy eternal glory with Christ. Now turn back to chapter 5. He reminds them that this is going to happen for a little while. Let's stop and talk about what that means. Now when I use those two little words, it's only one Greek word, but when I use those two little words to my children or to my wife, I generally have a different meaning than what is here in this text. So when my wife asks me to do things, what we affectionately call as a honeydew list, and she's gently reminding me that I haven't completed an item on the list, I will often say to her, honey, I'll take care of that in a little while. Now, little while means to me a couple things. One is I want to do what I'm doing right now and finish that, so it's going to be after that. Um, but it also generally means it's going to be before the day's done. I don't use the words little while too often to mean a year or two or three years from now. When I say it to my children, they want to do something, and I say, we'll do that in a little while. I have a rather short time frame in mind. Sometimes we as believers can read those words, little while, in both places, and begin to think, well, that means that whatever difficulty I'm going through, it's always going to be really short. That's not what the text is actually saying. He, he's actually laying little while beside something else. What is he laying little while beside? I'm trying to ask questions this morning so we can stay focused on our text. But he says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal what? So, so he puts one thing beside another. He puts a little while of suffering beside what? Eternal glory. Okay, now I see what he's saying. So, so little while for me is before the end of the day after I'm done doing what I'm doing. But for God, he's saying, no, 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 a little while could mean your entire life. And we know believers, and some of you are in this room, that, that we, could, we could accurately say your suffering has been from your birth to present. You've suffered in some way consistently and never had complete reprieve. So how do we, how do we balance a little while with that? Well, he, he's talking about compared to eternity. So let's imagine we live 80 years, or some of us are going to be graced with 90, or 100, or 106. 
but the average about 78.1, I understand, in the United States right now. So, so let's imagine that that's the average. And so we put our 80 years or so beside eternity. Okay, now that, that does really seem like a little what? A little while. So, so the encouragement here is this is normal Christian life. You say, well, that's not really encouraging. If he told me it's done next week, that would be something to shout about. No, no, he's saying you, you have this eternal glory that's coming, so your trials and your suffering is just for what? A little while. Now, you may want to turn here or just jot this passage down because this passage just screams this truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. The closest you will get in your Bible to an autobiography of the Apostle Paul. Want to know what made the Apostle Paul tick? Read 2 Corinthians. Closest you'll get. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Listen to the word of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction... So here he calls it a light momentary affliction. In Peter, he calls it a little while. A light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, so here's the pattern of the Christian life. We suffer, the God of all grace gives us grace to persevere, and we can look forward to enjoying eternal glory with the Son of God. But this little while is saying that during our journey, we should expect suffering. So unfortunately, we have Christians that through faulty thinking, or perhaps as one person has said, flaky preaching and teaching, have come to the conclusion that the Christian life should be, if you have enough faith, rather steady with really no ups or downs, or certainly no downs. But that's not what we see here. Actually, the normal pattern is we're going to suffer. God's grace, the God of all grace, will cause us to persevere, and we will ultimately enjoy eternal glory. Now, two words here that we've already defined, but I just want to mention them to you. He says he's the God of all grace. Now, that word grace, you probably have heard it before. I think it's a wonderful acrostic, and it really captures what we see in the scriptures in terms of a definition for grace, and that is God's riches at Christ's expense. I think that's a wonderful way of expressing a definition of grace. Another definition of grace would be it's the undeserved love of God that we experience in the gifts he gives and the benefits that we have, the strength and favor. But this grace is displayed, catch this, in the person of Jesus Christ. And then there's the word glory. He says eternal glory. When we talk about glory, it's kind of a Christianese word, isn't it? We can say glory. What did I just say? What does glory mean? Well, essentially, glory means the blessing of God's eternal presence. His perfections forever with us. We look forward to the consummation of the age and the finishing of all things and the completion of all things. And, and that's the glory we look forward to. So here's the pattern. You'll suffer. God will give you grace to endure, but you will ultimately enjoy eternal glory. So here is the premise. I know I'm hammering this, but Peter keeps hammering it in his little letter. Christianity doesn't remove us from the same trials that everyone else goes through. Swallow that as we enter a new year. 
I've already heard some of you saying what I've been saying the last few days. I hope 2021 is better than 2020. But let's just remember this. Christianity doesn't remove us from the same trials that everyone else goes through. In fact, what we find in Romans chapter 8 is we're supposed to be groaning Christians, not moaning Christians. Groaning because we can't wait for the glory to be revealed and for the Lord Jesus to return in great power and glory and for him to set all things right and for there to be no more suffering, no more pain. But until that day, we're groaning as a woman in childbirth, we're told in Romans 8. And not just us, the whole creation is groaning. This will change your perspective. If you can get used to this pattern, and some of you, even as a young person in here today, you may think, oh, this is, you're using big words, this isn't for me. If you could get a hold of this principle, this is normal Christian life. God, in his great sovereign grace, is making you to be like Jesus, and one of the ways he's doing that is through the trials and difficulties and afflictions that you experience. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12? He said he asked the Lord three times to remove this thorn in the flesh. But the Lord said, no, I'm not going to do it. My strength is made perfect in your weakness, and my grace is sufficient for you. You see, the pattern of the Christian life is that we are going to suffer and have affliction. Luther said it this way. He said, the top three ways that God is going to give you means of grace to change you, to be like Christ, Luther said it's prayer, it's meditation on the word, and trials. That's how he does it. So there's no escape. No one gets a pass. We need a perspective change, don't we? Have you ever noticed that the same event can happen, same people or different people can experience the same event, but they see it from different perspectives? You know that's true. I mean, it just happened with an election. <laughs> All right? So, so, so people look at the same event that they experienced from radically different perspectives. This weekend, Friday night to be specific, Something happened in sports world that was not a happy moment for me, okay? Uh, my favorite college team, the Clemson Tigers, got destroyed by another team that I won't mention, but Pastor Matt's sons had the... Oh, okay, okay, they're, they're going ahead and mentioning. Different perspectives, though. They had pajamas or they had clothes on this morning that Ohio State, I went, they went to welcome me this morning as I went downstairs for EBBC Kids. But different perspectives, right? If you had, and I had, this perspective about the various afflictions and trials that we will experience this year, how would that change our trust in the God of all grace? I want to suggest to you it could radically change it because some of us were surprised every time we turn a corner and there's some challenge. So that's the first heading, the pattern. Secondly, I want you to see the promise he says, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, this title for the Lord has really struck me. I mentioned to you over the last month, as I've been reading through the book of 1 Peter, I would come to this passage, and then the next one that we'll look at next week about standing firm in his grace, all of these things just keep screaming at me. But it's the only time in the New Testament where our God is called the God of all grace. Now, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot down that there are other passages in the scriptures that give us wonderful titles of our God like this. For instance, in Romans 15, 13, our God is called the God of hope. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 16, he's called the Lord of peace. 
The only other time this phrase is used about an attribute of our God is found in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, where we're told that he is the God of all comfort. But here he's called the God of all grace. What exactly is he saying about our God? He, he's saying that all of the grace that we need and that we receive finds its source in our God. There's no other place to find sustaining grace except from our God of all grace. So what he's doing is he's taking these exiles, these elect exiles who are suffering and are struggling, and he's pointing their heads upward. It was his first sermon, well, one of his first sermons, my understanding, of Charles Spurgeon in 1855. He was only 20 years old. And he introduced his sermon this way. I, I saw this a couple places as I was studying this week on this passage. But here's how Spurgeon started his sermon. Now, I know it's a little old English. So You've got to listen carefully. But he says here, He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods the narrow globe. You hear that again? He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods the narrow globe. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. As I was reading this a couple times this week, I, I thought, there were many occasions and patches of my life in 2020 where all I did was plod the globe. Am I the only one? I, I mean, there, there were times where, as a believer, as a pastor... I was a practical atheist. I, I wasn't thinking of God. I was just plotting the globe. I was doing my thing. And he, and he says, would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know of nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief, so speak peace to the winds of trials as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. I know it's older English, but he's saying instead of thinking about your trials and just plodding along and trying to get through and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, think about God. So how much did you think about God this past week? How many times did you put the phone in a different room where it could not bother you? And you read passages like this one, perhaps, the God of all grace, and you just chewed on that. You meditated on that. You asked the Spirit of God to really unpack that to your soul. What does it mean that, God, you're the God of all grace? You're the source of all sustenance. Do we know what it's like to think about God? Are we more like what Spurgeon calls the man or woman who simply plods the narrow globe. I'm afraid that we probably fit that latter category more than we do the, 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 the former one. That rather than thinking on God, like Jeremiah says that we should do, we plod the globe. Now what's the connection here? Remember the pattern. The pattern is we will suffer... But the God of all grace will give us the grace to sustain us so that we can persevere and we will ultimately enjoy eternal glory. So what should we be doing 
when we're going through afflictions and we need grace. We should be going to the God of all grace. I was thinking about this song. I, again, I, I found this in my study, and I was reminded that as a kid, we used to sing it all the time. I haven't sung it in a long time, and I was tempted to, to do that for you this morning, but then I thought otherwise it might be distracting. But, but the song is, He Giveth More Grace. And it was written by a, a, a woman by the name of Ann Johnson Flint. She was six when both of her parents passed away. She was orphaned at age six. She had arthritis as a teenager, it was so bad that she lost the use of her legs, she became bedridden, and then was plagued by sores. This was during the 1940s, and the world and the United States were all a mess. And you would think that it would be a perfect opportunity for a poet to write a song that was dark and dreary, but no. Here's what she wrote. When we have exhausted our store of endurance... When our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, I love that, hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit, His grace has no measure, His power has no boundary known unto men, for out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth again. So where do you go when you have reached the end of your hoarded resources? The God of all grace. See, he's saying there's a promise here that the God of all grace will be there. Now, he says it for a certain group of people. I don't want you to miss this. He says it's a certain group of people that the God of all grace is going to give grace to. Who is it? Those he's called to his eternal glory in Christ. Don't miss the phrase. You see it in your text? Shake your head if you do. He's called a certain group of people. What does that word mean, he's called you? Well, we've seen this word used throughout the book of 1 Peter. It refers to the effective call of salvation. It is referring to the effective work by which God, in his sovereign grace, inducts believers into a saving relationship with himself through Christ. How do you know you've been called? When, when, it, when did it happen? Well, according to 1 Thessalonians, it happened when you heard the gospel and you believed. That's when you were called. So when were you called, believer? Did you respond to the call? I mean, I remember July 3rd, 3rd, 1985, that I heard the call. I heard that I was a sinner and that I needed a Savior and that Jesus was that God-man who had taken away my sin. And then he had rose from the dead, and now he's Lord, and he's got this new name, and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's true for you. So how do you know you've been called? Did you respond to the call? And if you responded to the call, the next phrase, he says he's called you to his eternal glory. The next phrase says, this is true. This kind of grace is given by the God of all grace to a certain group of people. This certain group of people have to be in Christ. Do you see it in your text? I'm really trying to get you to look at your Bibles. Make sure you know I'm not making it up. In Christ. This is Paul and Peter's and the apostles' favorite way of expressing our relationship with God. Rather than calling us Christians, they most often call us in Christ. There's only one other category. You're either in your sins or you're in what? In Christ. And if you are in Christ, all of these benefits from the God of all grace are yours. Amen? 
Ephesians 1 puts it this way, that he has given us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. I mentioned to you before, everything falls or stands on the prepositions in terms of our relationship to Christ. So when we say that we're in Christ, we're saying that we are united in Jesus. We are united with his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his session at the right hand of the Father, and his second coming. That's what we mean when we say we're in Christ. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. When I say that we are in Christ, or we refer to ourselves as being in Christ, it's similar to our relationship to an airplane. A couple years ago, we took a group from East Brandywine Baptist Church to Brazil, to Recife with Maria Guzmão. had a wonderful trip. Now imagine we were about to get on an airplane to go to Brazil today, to Recife, Brazil. What needs to happen, what kind of relationship do you need to have to that plane in order to fly to Brazil? You need to be in it, right? So, so I know this is silly, but stay with me for a second. If you decided, you know what, I think I want to be under it. I want to show my submission to that big Airbus. I'm getting under it. Is that going to get you to Brazil? Nope. Probably going to end your life. <laughs> or what if you said, you know what, I'm inspired by this Airbus. Air it's going to inspire me to get to Brazil. Would you get there? No. Or, or what if you said, I'm going to follow this big Airbus. I'm going to be right behind it because it looks like it can get there. Will it get you to Brazil? No, the only way for you to enjoy all of the benefits of that Airbus and its location, its ultimate location, is for you to be what? In it. And dear folks, the only way for us to enjoy the benefits of the God of all grace is to be in Christ. That's the sphere, the arena of all of these blessings. It's not enough to talk about following Jesus. I know there's a lot of talk there, and we certainly need to follow Jesus, but I've become a little tired of hearing people express it in such a way that it becomes confusing. I need, I need to be in Jesus. I need to be united with the Savior who took my sin and gave me his righteousness if I'm going to ever enjoy this eternal glory. So have you responded to the call this morning? I, I perhaps am speaking to some folks that you've heard a lot about Jesus, you've heard a lot about the scriptures, perhaps heard a lot about the gospel, the good news, but you've never responded to the call. How do you respond to the call? You call out on this Jesus who died to save you. Now, what does he promise? I'm just going to go over this fast. He uses four verbs. He says, here's what the God of grace is going to promise to do for you, suffering saints, for you elect exiles. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to restore you. He's going to make you strong. He's going to make you firm, and he's going to make you steadfast. Do you see that in your text? First of all, the word restore. We're familiar with this word, katartezai. You were familiar with that Greek word, yes? Well, maybe not the Greek word, but you will recognize it as being the word used for mending the nets when the apostles, before they were the apostles, were mending their fishing nets. It's also the word used in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, that says if anybody's overtaken in a fault, you that are spiritual, restore the brother in the spirit of meekness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That's an orthopedic word. 
It's talking about resetting a bone or putting in screws and, and making sure that it's stabilized. It's restoring something, catch this, to its former condition. It's mending broken nets. It's setting broken bones. Here's what the God of all grace promises you. If you're in Christ, he's going to repair all the damage of the fall. All the sin, all the suffering, he's going to restore it all. He's going to bring you to full completion. What he started, he's going to complete. Is that not good news? The God of all grace, after you've suffered a little while, he's going to restore you completely. Humpty Dumpty will be put back together again. And he, we will be put back together again by the sovereign grace of our God of all grace. God will not allow the work he has begun in you to fall short of his perfecting grace. That ought to jazz you up. <laughs> He's going to restore. He's also going to make you strong. This is the Greek word that, that talks about propping up something so that it doesn't topple over. Every dad or grandfather in this room knows this feeling. I, I saw a video not too long ago. It was just a candid video. It was almost like one of those America's Funniest Home Videos. But it was a series of clips of dads who are, without looking or changing what they were doing, if their kid was about to fall off the couch, they would just kind of like, you know, unconsciously stop them. If they were on ice, it was just amazing how a dad. It's like we're always attuned to, my child might topple over, and we're, we're there. This picture is that our God of all grace will never allow us to topple over. He will provide us this immobility, this fixicity, that we will not topple over. So no matter the temptation, no matter the sufferings, you will never fall over. He's going to keep you from falling. Then he uses another word that has an idea of strengthening, but this one's more internal. The next one, firm, he says, it means to impart strength internally. So if you're looking at your text, he says, restore, confirm, and then strengthen. Strengthen is meaning he won't allow you to collapse. So, it, so the, the one word talks about toppling over, so you have some external structures. He uses his church, he uses the scriptures, he uses prayer, he uses the elements of Lord's table to be means of grace. But he's also talking about this internal strengthening. You remember in Ephesians chapter 1 and 3, where the apostle Paul records some prayers for the Ephesian believers, and he says, I pray that you will be strengthened in your what? In your inner man. So our God of all grace is going to restore us to complete perfection. He will complete what he started. What he inaugurated will be completed. He will strengthen you on the outside. You'll never fall. Don't worry about it. You will not ultimately fall. He's going to strengthen you from the inside out. And then there's this word steadfast that refers to our foundations, that we are established, Ephesians 3.17, that we are rooted and grounded in love. Now, this is a secure foundation, right? Now, this may seem like rhetorical redundancy, but let me just review real quickly. There's orderly development. He uses these four words to say this. You will persevere. God's people in Christ could not be more secure. So he's going to keep on perfecting his suffering children so that no defect remains in you. And then he's going to supply believers with the needed support so that they will not topple over. 
He's going to impart needed strength so that you will not collapse. And he's going to set you upon an immovable foundation so that you'll never be swept away. Glory. The God of all grace. What more could you ask for? What more could he say than to you he has said? Well, he says a little more, actually. I want you to notice that he doesn't send his messengers to do this. He says he's going to do it himself. We're getting close here. Just, just hear me out. In the text, he says, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself do this. So he's not sending his messengers or his angels to do this work. He's doing it what? Himself. The God of all grace is the one who's making the promise. I'm going to personally restore, strengthen, firm you up, make you steadfast. I'm going to do this myself. Have you ever noticed, those of you that have had serious surgeries, how, what condolence and comfort it brings when your surgeon, maybe the next day or later that day, comes in your room and visits you? Himself. It gives you comfort that he's not ashamed of his work, <laughs> You know, because if you can't find him, you're getting really worried. But, but, but for them to personally visit your room, I haven't had too many serious surgeries. I've had some surgeries. But when that surgeon comes into your room the next day to check on you, there's an amazing amount of comfort there. The God of all grace is the one who promises this. He's not delegating this task. Beautiful, wonderful, holy trinity is doing this. The Father planned it. The Son executed it and accomplished it and the spirit of God is applying it to your life so what does this mean this means that God himself the God of grace is going to do this there's grace believer listen to this here's the application don't miss this there's grace for every situation in your life there's grace for every station in your life there's grace for every season in your life and there's grace for every struggle there's grace to be a parent all parents said, glory. <laughs> There's grace to be a teenager. All teenagers said, glory. There's grace to be married. There's grace to be single. There's grace to have a job. There's grace to need one. He's the God of all grace. There's grace for grieving. There's grace for rejoicing. He's the God of all grace. That's the promise. Our God is the God of all grace, and I want to conclude with Simply the praise. And he gives this very short, abbreviated doxology. He says, to him be the power or the dominion forever and ever. There's not even a verb here. Now, they included a verb so that it makes sense. But he's just basically saying, if the God of all grace promises to do all of that, only thing I can do is just exalt him in open-throated praise. And believer, that's what we ought to do. And you'll notice at the end of this doxology, which is often the case, there is an amen included. And we sang together earlier, let the amen sound from his people again. There was a time where God's people, and I'm not trying to chastise you by this comment, that, that when a prayer was ended or when a statement of doxology or praise was made, God's people would affirm it by saying, so let that be, and they would give a good hearty what? Amen be a good practice for us to get back into but what he's saying here is that we have an anchor that keeps the soul listen to hebrews 6 18 and 19 
we who have fled for refuge in Christ might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place, the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain. You see, we are not like a little fishing bobber going whatever direction the winds and waves take it. Our sovereign God is not sitting on a deck chair. He placed himself on a cross so that we now could have the confidence to enter into the Holy of Holies. And he uses this beautiful imagery of an anchor. Listen to the refrain of this song. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? It will not remain unless it is in Christ. And believer, you are in Christ. You have been called. And he says there could be no more security than you have available to you because the God of all grace will complete what he has started. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we confess to you that we have often plotted along the planet this past year without thinking about you without musing of the Godhead. We pray that in 2021, you would help us to know you, the God of all grace. That we, like Jeremiah, spoke your words in saying that we should not glory or boast in any other knowledge or accomplishment. Lord, we desire to know you better and better. We ask, Lord, that you would grow us in our knowledge of you this year. That we would understand the rhythms of the Christian life are not that complicated. There will be suffering and affliction and difficulty and challenge across the continuum from persecution to relational disruption. All part of it. And you're using this, the God of all grace, to give us the grace to be made in the image and conformed into the image of your son, Jesus. And we look forward to the eternal glory that we're going to share with you forever. We ask now, Lord, as we remember our Savior through this wonderful ordinance that you've given to us, that you would give us fresh joy repentant hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.